Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Apart from hearing England football fans chanting two World Wars and one World Cup at pretty much every major international game since the Second World War, what is the relationship between World Wars and World Cups? Well, it comes down to this idea of sports washing, how controversial governments and despotic regimes choose to host sports events in an attempt to cleanse their reputation on the world stage. We need only think of Hitler and the 1936 Olympics, known as the Hitler Olympics, or Russia in 2018 after their first invasion of Ukraine, or even Argentina in 1978 before invading the Falkland Islands, and of course the controversies around Qatar hosting the FIFA World Cup today are another pertinent example of sports washing. Put simply, there are many instances where war and sport cross over. Now, I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to take us through a history of sports washing, I've invited Professor Martin Polly onto the podcast. Now, Martin is a sports historian. He is director of the International Center for Sports History and Culture and author of a book, Moving the Goalposts, a history of sport and society since 1945. He fits the bill. He's the expert we need. Simply put, I think you're going to find Martin's take on World Wars and World Cups fascinating. Enjoy. Hi, Martin. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, James. Great to meet you. Good to meet you too, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. The World Cup is in full swing, so I'm sure this is a super busy time for you. Absolutely, yeah. And in a couple of hours, England v Wales kicks off, so I'm uh, excited about that one. Yeah, they do. So we've got to get this done sharpish so we can get out there, get a beer and go and watch the game. Now, one of the things that has come to the world's attention off the back of this World Cup is this idea of sports washing. Now, it's a term that I know has been around for a short period of time, but the way I see it, and perhaps you could clarify for me, is it's the idea that a country or a regime takes on a sporting event, whether it's the Olympics or a World Cup or a European Championships, as a means to bolster their reputation in international 
politics. So it's to kind of cleanse them of previous sins and to make them look acceptable on the world stage. Have I hit the nail on the head? Is that what sports washing is? Absolutely. I mean, as we'll discuss, I'm sure, in a few minutes, there are plenty of very long-term historical examples. But the phrase itself seems to have been coined only as recently as 2015 by a campaign group called Sport for Rights in Azerbaijan, who were drawing attention to the Azerbaijan government's use of these techniques, basically as a PR stunt, right, uh, around the European Games in Baku that year. So yeah, basically, the washing bit of it refers both to laundering, I think, but also to kind of like whitewashing, so to covering things up. And it's exactly that. You talked about governments, and that's the main way in which we use it. But we can also talk about corporations or individuals too. But it's essentially a government or an organisation that has a bad reputation in some areas, human rights, working conditions, fossil fuel reliance, environmental impact, some kind of bad reputation using sport because of its alleged neutrality, the myth of sports political neutrality, and using sport as a way to create a great image, to get the world watching, maybe to get the world visiting. Uh, So it's exactly that. It's a very sophisticated form of PR to help bolster bad reputations. So, you know, right now we're talking about this in terms of Qatar and hosting the FIFA World Cup. There's lots of controversies around this. I mean, a lot of people annoyed that we're kind of watching the World Cup in the middle of winter and that it's held in Qatar during their winter so that the players obviously don't um, get exhausted by the extreme heat that would take place in the summer, but also the fact that it was held there in the first place and was held in Russia the last time round, off the back of the fact that they had invaded Ukraine in 2014. So Qatar gets, you know, the rough end of the stick here, but this is an issue that's been around for a while. And also, is it something that's predominant just within the World Cup, or do we see this in tournaments through different sports all around the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the World Cup and the Olympics are probably the most obvious examples. I mean, bear in mind, the Olympics through history have gone to Nazi Germany in 1936. They went to the USSR in Moscow in 1980. They went to Mexico City in 1968, which, let's not forget, included a massacre somewhere in the region of 300 protesting students a couple of days before the opening ceremony, which the IOC conveniently ignored. The Olympics have been to Beijing in 2008 and for the winters in 2022. Winter Olympics in Russia in 2014, World Cup. So yeah, it's a big and long tradition. But I think as well as hosting tournaments, and that's a really great one to get hold of, we do need to look at a few other examples as well. And the recent ones, I think, that really stand out come from Saudi Arabia. And the essential examples are the public investment fund from Saudi Arabia buying Newcastle United Football Club in 2021, the same fund promoting a brand new golf tournament and attracting lots of big names, the LIV tournament, which launched earlier this year in 2022. We also, of course, see Emirates and Etihad funding all through European football. So it's investment in clubs and events, as well as hosting big tournaments. And yeah, I mean, you can break it right down to national, regional, international events in a huge variety of sports. Big point is that sport has this wonderful mythological status of being apolitical. So putting on a sport event, everybody's happy. Everybody gets together for a good time. Oh, and by the way, it's a government with a bad reputation that's doing it. So I think while the World Cups and Olympics are the most obvious because they get the most attention, 
it is something that's absolutely rife throughout sport. You know what? I don't know why, but I, I hadn't even thought of club football when it comes to this. And, and that's naive of me because when we think about more recent events with the latest Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've seen that Roman Abramovich had to place Chelsea into a trust and ownership was for all intents and purposes taken off him due to his involvement with the Russian regime. So football may have, or all sports may have this myth of being apolitical, but they are immensely political because of the reputation they can give to a regime and of course the money that's tied up in them. But if we go back to the earliest example of this, and you've mentioned it already, and this is the 1936 Olympics, otherwise known as the Hitler Olympics. Well, let's start there. You know, this is the Warfare podcast. That is a major point in history. It's one that tries to legitimize, I guess, the Nazi regime. How on earth did Germany end up hosting the 1936 Olympics? Absolutely. I think before I answer that very quickly, let's not forget that in 1934, fascist Italy hosted the second FIFA World Cup. Much smaller scale to what we're talking about with Berlin, but let's keep that one in mind. Anyway, Berlin itself, though, so the Olympics were formed in their modern version in 1896. And the first ones went to Athens, Paris, St. Louis, London and Stockholm. And 1916, which would have been the sixth Olympics, were meant to be in Berlin. So the idea is going to move around the capital. St. Louis was a bit of an anomaly. But of course, other things were going on in Europe in 1916, and the Berlin Olympics were cancelled. Coming out of the Great War, Germany and other defeated nations were essentially thrown out of the Olympic movement. So again, any pretense at apolitical nature and peace and bonding goes out the window because the defeated nations were thrown out. So Germany was absent in 1920 from Antwerp and from Paris in 1924. But you then get this great rehabilitation going on, if you like, the Locarno effect. And alongside Germany being brought back into the political fold, they're brought back into the IOC, into the Olympics. And the reward and the rehabilitation is so quick that in 1931, obviously Weimar government, pre-Nazis, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, award the 1936 Olympics to Berlin. So in other words, you're 20 years on from when they should have had it in 1916, you can have it. The bid process was nothing like it is now. It was much more just the IOC asked for it to go there. So the games were actually awarded during the period of the Weimar Republic. So the Nazis weren't in power. Uh, it was a democratic republic when the games went there. So come 1933 and the Nazi takeover of power, the immediate response from Germany seems to have been, what are we involved with? We don't like these international bourgeois, probably Jewish influenced sports. This isn't how we want to play. And so there was conversation about simply walking away. But I think very early on, and obviously Goebbels was key to this, they realised the huge potential of staging a sporting event at which a large part of the world would come, obviously nothing like the modern scale, but around 40 or 50 nations would come. They would get a lot of attention and they realised very early on that this was a great opportunity to promote the new Germany, to promote order, strength, discipline, but also to say, hey, look, you know, you can work with us, you can deal with us, we can play the same games as you. And so very quickly, they took it on as a project. So I guess the quick answer is it was awarded to the Democratic Republic. The Nazis then appropriated it. But then Goebbels sees uh, an absolute prime example of how he can push Nazi propaganda about the Aryan race and the ideal Nazi image all around the world. I, I assume they were hoping that lots of Germans would win the golds. They were, absolutely. They made a few concessions. So obviously, by the time the games came along, German sport was as segregated as so many other areas 
of German society on racial lines. They did allow one Jewish athlete to compete, a fencer called Helen Meyer, but it was very clear that the German team was segregated there. But yeah, the idea would be this is a show of strength for the Aryans, and it's a great chance for us to show the organisation Nazi Germany, but also the racial superiority. And of course, a group of American athletes led by Jesse Owens, black American athletes, stuck a couple of fingers up at this uh, this programme, shall we say. They most certainly did. And you've got those iconic photos of Jesse Owens standing there. I think he won four gold medals and he's standing in the middle as you've got the German athletes either side doing the Nazi salute. But I've got a question that's puzzled me for a very long time. So I, I understand that... You know, the Olympics was awarded to the Weimar Republic and it becomes something different under Hitler's power and under Goebbels. But surely the Olympic Committee, they sent people over before the events to check on the suitability of the country to continue to host the event. You know, it, it was no secret what was going on in Nazi Germany. So how was it able to continue to hold on to it? Well, I think the International Olympic Committee doesn't come out of this too well at all. But I think from the IOC, the big problem is that Pierre de Coubertin, so the founder of the modern Olympics and a very influential figure in the Games, was, I'm not going to say a Nazi sympathiser, but he was certainly very, very in tune with what the Germans were doing around the Olympics. He wanted Berlin to set up an international Olympic Institute, which would hold his archives. He died a year or two later, so in the end that didn't come out. He talked about the huge success of the Berlin Olympics after that happened. So, you know, he was a fan. So the opposition came less from the Olympic movement and more from groups in other countries, Jewish groups, communist groups, trade union groups, and also athletes who didn't necessarily see themselves as political, but could understand that if one of the founding principles of sport is fair play, then you don't have fair play if some racial groups are being barred from joining in and joining the clubs. And I guess the big one came from the US, where there was a very serious conversation about a boycott within the American Olympic movement. It actually went to a vote. And they sent, as you say, some fact finders over. The most famous was a guy called Avery Brundage, who was a leading figure in the US athletic movement, went on later to become the president of the IOC. And he went on a fact finding mission. And basically, he loved everything he saw. In some of his conversations, he talked about the idea of a boycott being a Jewish plot to derail the Olympics. So again, we get a, a sense of his orientation here. But broadly, he was shown what he wanted to see and what his Nazi hosts wanted him to see. Yeah, the phenomenal stadium being built. I mean, let's face it, this is a beautiful piece of architecture, huge organisation going into it. So they were impressed. They were shown what their hosts wanted them to see. They went back home to say, yep, the games can go ahead. And I think the other thing to stress, and this is the one that comes up again and again and again, is that even those people who don't like the politics of the host, who wouldn't see themselves as Nazi sympathisers, would still make the argument, ah, but putting the games there might help to liberalise, right? If they suddenly have all these people from around the world of different races and different backgrounds, maybe it will be a leverage to liberalisation. And some people made that argument in 36. We saw it again in Moscow in 1980. We saw it again in Sochi in 2014. We've seen it again in Qatar 2022. And I'm beginning to think it's not true, right? I'm nearly 100 years on from this. So there is that idealistic, maybe naive belief that sport can help as leverage towards liberalisation. So far, I've seen no evidence that that actually happens. So is what you're saying here that people like David Beckham need a good history lesson? I mean, History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. But, you know, massive amounts of money are being exchanged. You can argue there's a, a deliberate naivety there, or at least one that, you know, 
could do a little dosing of education about the effects of sports events on changing regimes. Is this a problem that people like David Beckham, and yes, he's become a focus of this, there are many others as well, but they're legitimising these regimes and their events? I think so, yeah. Again, I'm I'm not going to sit here and criticise how other people choose to earn their money. The £10 million, when you know exactly what's going on, I do find a bit hard to swallow. And I think the backlash that Beckham has had, particularly from LGBT communities, where he was seen as an ambassador for all right reasons, I think he has damaged that standing by doing this. I mean, Brundage in 1936 wasn't receiving money from them, but there are similarities for sure in terms of serving as a spokesperson or as an ambassador when you know the problems in that area. So yeah, it is problematic. And I think Beckham's brand will decline as, as a result of this. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, let's think about some more of these similarities. One of the major controversies of the World Cup in Qatar at the moment is this ban on rainbow flags and people with rainbow tattoos being carted off or you know, any expression of any support for the LGBTQ plus communities 
that are out there. Is that something that happened during 1936? Was there this enforcement of Nazi ideals on the athletes and on the spectators? No, quite the opposite, in fact. And this is really, really fascinating. There's a period during 1936 that historians have referred to as the Olympic pause, where some propaganda was literally removed. So some of the revolting anti-Semitic posters and signs and Jews and dogs not welcome in this town, this kind of stuff, were removed. There were stories in the press, I've seen a lot of this in the British government archives, where things were going out in the press, reminding the German people that there'd be a lot of people from other countries coming to visit. And there's one that sticks in my mind where it says, you know, you'll see these people on the buses and in the street. Some of them might look like Jews. Some of them might even be Jews, but please be polite. So there was this real sense that they're on display and they want to be seen to be friendly and not to be hostile to anyone. And of course, it was the most ludicrous front because we all know what else was going on behind the scenes and what happens as soon as the games finish. So quite the opposite, really, from the clampdown now. They were consciously being much more welcoming to the kind of people that they would normally vilify and harass. So was that successful, those efforts to kind of play down the true undertones of Nazi Germany and to show to the world that Germany is a welcoming place? Because one of the things we've seen coming out of Qatar is this whole discussion around players being too political and they can't wear the one love armbands. And that has just really put a massive focus on the cause of those armbands, which has you know, been a real positive effect. And it's drawn massive international attention to the human rights violations that have taken place, the deaths that have taken place during the building of the stadiums. So did the Nazis do it in a successful way by not making this a political issue themselves? Yeah, great question. Again, I think because they were kind of the first, as I say, the fascist World Cup in 1934 was there. Because they were kind of the first, they weren't looking back at what's worked in the past and what hasn't. So they were making the rules up. I think very importantly, the fact that, let's go back to Jesse Owens, a black American who would not normally have been welcome in Berlin at that time, was being lauded. And they loved him. And if you go and watch Olympia, Lenny Riefenstahl's official film of the games, they don't shy away from how fantastic Owens was, how beautiful he was, elegance of his movement. Yeah, that film is in love with Owens. And that was an official Nazi propaganda. So I think for me, that plus the fact that they did very much window dressing, but they had a Jewish athlete in the team, all worked to give this image of being a welcoming place. And this big myth has developed that Hitler didn't shake Jesse Owens' hand after the event. As far as I can see, the real version is that Hitler had wanted to shake one athlete's hand and he was told it's either all winners or none. And Owens happened to fall into the none category. And I've certainly heard one interview with one of Jesse Owens' daughters that Hitler did shake hands with Owens behind the scenes, just not with the cameras there. And again, just a little side note, let's not forget that when Owens got back to the States, he was still using segregated washrooms. He was still using segregated dining rooms. He had to use the rear door of the hotel where the reception was being given to the returning American team. He didn't get a handshake from Roosevelt either. So, you know, again, it's very easy to concentrate all of the attention on the Nazis, but America wasn't exactly guiltless here. But no, to go back to the original point there, I think it's they were making it up. They were creating their own rules. And by giving this image of being welcoming and accepting, I absolutely think that that helped with the whole legitimacy of the Berlin Games. Well, thank you so much, Martin, for taking us through this history of sports washing at a time where it's so important to understand the historical context behind what is going on in Qatar. I've got one final question for you, though. 
Do you think that what is going on at the moment with the FIFA World Cup is going to have a detrimental effect on the reputation of the World Cup around the world? You know, is this something that's going to be able to continue long into the future? Is it something that's going to end or is the World Cup untouchable? Great question. I think to a degree, the World Cup and the Olympics are untouchable. But what we've seen for the Olympics, a trend over the last few years is interesting. And that is fewer and fewer cities wanting to host it because it's become so expensive, because the security levels, particularly post 9-11, are so high. So whereas in the 1980s and 90s, you're getting six, seven, sometimes eight cities bidding to host, for the next three Olympics, 24, 28 and 32, there have literally been one host wanting it each time. So I think fewer cities are getting interested, and partly that's because of security and because of the unknown risks that go around it. The other point you raised was reputation, and absolutely, I do think that this World Cup has damaged football's reputation, certainly men's football's reputation. Women's football is in many ways different and its reputation is so much better right now for a whole range of reasons. And I think the way in which so many football authorities, obviously FIFA, but also individual federations, have backed down at the first sign of pressure from the Qatari hosts, particularly over the One Love armbands, has not done the game any good. It's creating, I think, a lot of own goals, if I can use a football analogy there. And so I think what you might get is almost a kind of decline in reputation, a decline in credibility. I know that I'm not alone in being a football fan who is kind of less bothered than normal about this World Cup. As you say, partly that's about the winter time, but I'm not watching anywhere near as much. And I know that from amongst my friends and family, I'm not alone in that. There's two things, I guess. One could be a loss of interest in hosting, And the second could be a loss of credibility and reputation. But I think the only thing that will really, really hit is if the advertisers and the media walk away. And I think we're nowhere near the end of this yet. But obviously, FIFA has a contract with Budweiser. The hosts then said there's no beer in the stadiums apart from in the hospitality boxes. That is going to have a little dent in FIFA's relationship with Budweiser. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We're seeing elsewhere, particularly on on social media, the impact the loss of advertisers can have on how a brand can operate. And I think if these protests and this reputational damage begins to sneak through to the boardrooms of the advertisers and they start to think about putting their money elsewhere, then that's where I think we might see change. Well, Martin, thank you again for taking the time to come and talk with us, for taking us through a history of, well, from world wars to world cups, I guess. Tell us, where can people read more about this, read more of your work? They can read more of my work. Uh, I read a book called The British Olympics, published with English Heritage a few years ago, that looks at the role of the Olympics in Great Britain. I've got more stuff coming out soon. I'd really recommend the work of my brilliant colleague, Dr. Heather Dichter, who does a lot of work on sports diplomacy. She's written this fantastic case study on the 1968 Olympics, how political the bidding process was for that. And she's edited a fantastic book called Soccer Diplomacy that has loads of different case studies on the ways in which governments have got themselves involved with football for a variety of political reasons. So some good starting points there. Fantastic. Thanks, Martin. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks very much, James. Great to speak to you. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, 
rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.